Okay, tonight uh, we are in part seven of this overview of church history. Hopefully you're beginning to see some of the different components of it that we've been looking at help define how we see the church has operated and how it's come together and why it looks the way it looks uh, through some of the different turning points. And that's where I've started um, each week is talking a little bit about the turning points that um, that have kind of shaped the previous era. So last week we talked about the age of reason and revival. And tonight we're going to talk about the age of progress. And then we have two more studies uh, that will talk about the age of ideologies and then the age of technology. Now this uh, age here is uh, quite interesting in terms of some of the dynamics that the church uh, took in light of a lot of the history of revolution, both the French Revolution and the American Revolution. So we'll have a little bit of our understanding related to kind of the political elements that pressured the church to do a different direction. So here's the turning points from last week. So this age is from 1789 to 1914. And the picture I wanna show you is the picture of industrialization. So this is gonna change a lot of different things because technology changed and because people began to move to the cities. So you have kind of a move from the country, the rural into the urban as people came into different cities looking for jobs and so forth. So last week we talked about the age of enlightenment um, making a significant impact upon the church primarily because of the questioning of authority, religious authority, the authority of the papacy and that type of thing. And then the age of reason also led to people thinking about God. How does he rule the world? And there was a movement called deism that arose, which believes God kind of created the world like a clockmaker winds up a clock and lets it run out on natural law. We also kind of saw a change from an institutional type approach to a religion to more of an individualistic approach. Now, what I mean by that is prior to the Enlightenment, uh, people put their trust in institutional religion. And then it began to take more of an individualistic approach through the movement of pietism, the idea of personal revival, the idea of personal commitment, having a conversion experience with God. And then that led to the Great Awakening. There will be several Great Awakenings. Uh, tonight we'll mention the Second Great Awakening, and then there's even a third one as well. But the initial one was inspired by two individuals over in England, John Wesley and George Whitfield. So with that, we've come to the Age of Progress. And the Age of Progress is spawned upon the idea of not only the intellectual challenges that are being raised, but also the political challenges as well. So there's this social unrest that takes place because of the overreach of kings and papacy uh, in terms of controlling the people. And what we find taking place here is um, a French revolution in 1789. And there was hope that was given that the common person, the common worker, 
would have more uh, rights than what they had to this point. But with that also came kind of a pushback against clerics, against the clergy, against the papacy, against priests, and so forth. And what happened was really terrible. Um, the revolutionary government from 1793 to 1794 instituted what was called the Reign of Terror. Now, that's where the government began to persecute the priests and the nuns uh, of the Catholic Church. Uh, they would uh, sometimes hold a trial, uh, and many of them were executed uh, by the guillotine. Uh, what we do see, though, is most of the uh, people were kind of exiled. They were driven from their job and driven from their home. In fact, um, one estimate is that this government banned about 30,000 clergy during this period of time. So notice that's a pretty short period of time, 1793 to 1794, when this was taking place. The only uh, saving grace, I guess, if you can call it that, is when Napoleon came to power, uh, he began to see that there was an advantage to having some type of established religion. Now, he was a monarch and he was a dictator, but he was an individual that began to loosen up this pushback against Christianity. Not only was that a problem, but in this era, we see that science is... Uh, discovering all kinds of new things, and that is challenging Christians. Uh, what are they going to do with what is being discovered? In particular, uh, the discovery of evolution, and what do they do with this new discovery that uh, over the years, animals have evolved, and then when Charles Darwin uh, begins to talk about the evolution of man himself in his book, The Descent of Man, that began to threaten the church because now you're talking a little bit about uh, how is man really created in the image of God, uh, or is he simply a part of an evolutionary process? <clears throat> so that's kind of the setup for this period of time. And what we need to do is double back and talk about Catholicism again for a moment. So in the French Revolution, <clears throat> when there is a focus on the rights of common people, you have riots that take place. Now, that is something that uh, is similar to our own day and age. When uh, power oversteps, there is usually pushback, and there is uh, the destruction of property and that type of thing. But a flashpoint occurred when there was this prison in uh, France, in Paris, called the Bastille. And there was a riot that took place that set free not too many prisoners, but what it became was more of a flashpoint that uh, people were going to push back on religious and political authority. And uh, even to this day, if you ever hear a Bastille Day, it's recognizing this day, July the 14th, 1789, when they burned uh, this prison, uh, the Bastille, and uh, the uh, uh, the prisoners that were in there were released. 
Uh, obviously, they must have felt many of those prisoners were wrongly accused and arrested and that type of thing, too, for this type of thing to take place. So in many ways, uh, the French Revolution kind of gets a sense of the potential of mankind and the rights of mankind. And now, religiously, the focus is no longer on the papacy. It's no longer on the glory of God but on the ability of human beings. And so that shifts the focus. So of course, what's going to happen? Catholic Church is going to push back on that. They don't want to lose their power. So the Catholic Church is trying to turn back the clock. Napoleon allows these clerics to kind of resume their positions. And uh, as they get back into their positions, uh, they are trying to prevent a road to the uh progressive movement that they are seeing take place. And as a result of that, um, Catholicism uh, is looking with fear upon the populace, the uh, people that are pushing back on the misuse of power. And so you find the Roman Catholic churches in kind of a position where they're wanting to hold on to the old guard the way it was for over a thousand years, really, um, and yet the populace is pushing for change. Well, that's going to have an effect on our own uh, history as a nation as well, because the motivation for the American Revolution in many ways was to see kind of the gains that were accomplished in the French Revolution. So on the eve of the French Revolution, the church kind of basked in its glory, its pomp, its circumstance, uh, all of this type of thing, because they liked the feudal system that we talked about a couple of weeks ago. They liked having control over the kings. Sometimes the kings were looking to permission from the pope uh, to do some of the things that they wanted to do. But the middle, the middle class and the, the poor are the ones that are kind of left in the dust. And uh, they are, they're, they're starving. They don't have enough money. They, you know, they're be being left behind. So this sparks this revolutionary fever that takes place during this era that has an effect on the Catholic Church and upon society in general. And you'll see right in the middle of this particular slide, their concentration was on the rights to participate in the political system, the right to vote, and the right to have greater freedom of expression. Those three things is what's really pushing this revolution. Now think about it for a moment. That really is what motivated the American Revolution too, those same three things, uh, participate in politics, the right to vote, freedom of expression, uh, the ability to uh, put down the tyranny uh, of those that were in control. So uh, the American Revolution and the French Revolution kind of go hand in hand. They're trying to wrestle away power from uh, kings and other formidable authorities, that type of thing. And they thought that this is showing that the Enlightenment, uh, the concentration on reason, really did work because people were starting to discover their own potential and so forth. So the Catholic Church, again, um, looks down upon these revolutionaries uh, because they are part of uh, changing the order of uh, power. And as a result of that, 
um, they have kind of a special rage toward uh, those who are revolutionaries in France and throughout Europe as well. So does that make sense to everybody? Do you have any questions there or comments? So when you think of the American Revolution, um, also think about where it started. It really kind of started in the French Revolution and one kind of motivated the other. Now, the other influence that the Catholic Church is wrestling against is called liberalism. And what is happening here is um, people began to have a different outlook on, on church authority. Now, there isn't a whole lot that is said in the uh, scriptures about individual freedoms as we think about it in our own country. You know, everybody has uh, life, liberty, and pursuit of happiness as a God-given right. You can't turn to uh, chapter and verse on that in the Bible. In fact, there's a lot of oppressive uh, elements in the Bible that can continue to hold people down a lot of times. Well, uh, people begin to say, we don't believe that anymore. Uh, that's, and so liberty is to have the right to have your own opinions, your own viewpoints, those type of thing. And of course, the religious figures of the time, uh, they don't want that. They don't want you thinking for yourself. They want you just to do what you're told. And so the Pope and um, the Vatican and a lot of those that are in power uh, and I and let's not um, let's not re, uh, uh, keep this only to kind of the Roman Catholic Church. You're going to see that any authoritative structure, and even there's a pushback in the Anglican Church as well by uh, the clerics and so forth, because um, you don't want you to lose your uh, sense of uh, position and power and even some of the money that can be made off of people when they follow everything, you know, that they're told to do. So one thing Catholicism never did was learn how to engage with the culture at hand. Uh, they just chose to double down. And, uh, and as a result of that, there was a lot of people that um, began to look at the Catholic Church as an evil institution and that's unfortunate, too, because uh, whether we like it or not, um, you know, the development of the church since uh, Constantine all the way back to 314 is still our mother in the sense that um, we came to know Christianity through that history and so forth. So it's unfortunate that it's seen as such an evil entity uh, rather than saying, you know, uh, it, it's something that is is uh, tragic that it had such kind of a dark underbelly at times. But for the most part, people learned about Christ through the church and uh, the sacraments and that type of thing. Thoughts? What really is interesting, and I want you to note how late this is in the history of the Catholic Church. Remember, Constantine made uh, the Roman Church the state religion in 314 AD. 
Here it is, 1870. So it's a long time. You're talking about uh, over a thousand years here uh, where the Catholic Church basically was the institution. Well, now they're losing their grip on the people. And so one of the things that they do in doubling down is what is called uh, the, the Immaculate Conception and the Infallibility of the Pope. This does not come around until 1870. That's pretty late, okay? 1870 marks this declaration in um, the council called Vatican I, uh, where the supreme authority is, um, is the bishop or the pope in Rome, and the idea that when the pope speaks, on matters of faith, uh, he is always infallible uh, when he speaks what's called ex cathedra. So the infallibility then becomes kind of a prerequisite, as I as you see on the slide here, for an effective papacy. The church must be the monarch that controls people's understanding of the will of God. That's the way they're going to retain power and position. Well, in 1854, this is a picture of Pope Pius IX. Uh, he declares this dogma first with um, uh, Mary. So Mary, the mother of Jesus, uh, uh, you know, the church has always believed in the virgin conception and virgin birth. But what changed here is that the belief that Mary not only had the virginal conception and, and birth of Jesus, but she herself was conceived without sin. And that's why she could give birth to Jesus and he could be sinless is because she was without sin as well. So this now becomes a questionable uh, dogma. And the question that comes up is, can the Pope make these decisions alone uh, uh, with very the various theological positions without the convening of a council? So we've seen the Council of Nicaea, the Council of uh, Chalcedon, and all that type of thing in previous weeks. So now, which way is this going to turn? Uh, will it be... No, you still have to convene a council, and over a period of time, all these bishops come together to determine what the dogma of the church is. Well, Pope Pius here, um, he he pushes back on modern society, on socialism, rationalism, as well as freedom of the press, as well as he doesn't want to see a separation between church and state. So on eight... Uh, on July the 31st, 1870, they finally convene a council, and this council votes in favor of papal supremacy and the infallibility of the Pope. Well, you know, they see they see the advantage of this. They see that they can con continue to kind of control the masses as long as they retain, retain the power. So here... When, when the Pope is speaking ex cathedra, the technical term, uh, the official capacity is he is infallible. 
And what he says is immutable. That is, it's unchangeable until another pope, maybe later, might speak ex cathedra to change um, the viewpoint of the church on that. So uh, at one time, I think, um, you know, birth control was a no-no in the Catholic Church. And then they kind of changed their stance on that a little bit. But here we see uh, Pope Pius uh, uh, the Ninth. I said the 11th, it's Pope Pius the Ninth. He's look at what he says here. Here's a quote of his. If a future pope teaches anything contra contrary to the Catholic faith, that is, what's already been accepted as doctrine and is immutable, do not follow him. So, you know what he's saying? My positions are correct, and therefore no one should be allowed to change those. So it's it's an interesting thing that's taking place here where he's kind of guarding the system. You know what I'm saying? Well, others will come along and changes will be made, obviously, over the over the years. But this guy is trying to prevent it from happening. So any thoughts there? OK, so now uh, you also have kind of a new social frontier that is beginning to take place here because of the Industrial Revolution. So you saw that picture that I gave you earlier. Uh, so really the heart of the Industrial Revolution was London. Um, that's where it all begins. London is this very large city, and at one time it was the financial center of the world. And they were very powerful. And they were the ones that began to develop industry and commercial growth. And of course, people began to kind of try to figure out, um, you know, where do I belong? I mean, it's hard being a farmer, right? Uh, it's hard to be dependent upon weather and all those type of things. So a lot of people began to migrate to where they could find jobs. Now, a little bit later, you might ask them, you know, was that move worth it? And I'll show you in a second here. Boy, they worked under some horrendous conditions. But um, but think about it. Um, think about West Virginia for a moment. Back during the heyday of when I was growing up, a Akron was the rubber capital of the world, okay, making tires. Most of the people that were in West Virginia moved and migrated up to Akron uh, to get jobs in the rubber industry. So uh, Akron has um, a lot of West Virginian natives that uh, came up and, and made that their new home because of job opportunity. So that's just an illustration, basically, of what was happening in London, as well as people migrated toward the city and to these industrial uh, positions. So uh, now think about you're gonna you're gonna move your family. You have both hope and fear at the same time, right? What's gonna happen, you know, if it doesn't work out there? But yet at the same time, the potential of having a good, consistent job is appealing. So you can kind of feel their. Uh, equilibrium is kind of uh, being set, 
shaky because of that, because of both fear and hope at the same time. Now, the dawning of this era also found that there is more of a definition in England in based upon the revival we saw with Wesley and Whitfield last week, that um, the concentration of religion is found in the Anglican Church and these new nonconformist or non-denominational type um, movements that have taken place uh, through the powerful ministries of uh, Wesley and Whitfield. But something has changed. And what has changed now is the church is no longer the institution that must be followed. Uh, this idea that began in pietism is, no, you have to follow your experience, and in particular, the conversion experience of meeting Christ. And then what you do is you use the scripture as well as uh, your personal experience of salvation as the centerpiece uh, for your worship of God. Do you, you see, I mentioned a moment ago, it shifted from institutional to individual. Does that make sense? Okay. Now, with that came some good things, though. This is a picture of William Wilberforce. He lived from 1759 to 1833. And he was out of that type of movement um, where he has this conversion experience when he's 25 years old. And he also was a politician. And he had such natural uh, verbal eloquence that uh, people called him the Nightingale of the House of Commons. In other words, people just kind of took notice because of his eloquent uh, nature. Well, after he was converted, he began to see the need for evangelicalism that we talked about last week. Uh, it, it needed some organization. So during this time, we see uh, such movements as the Church Missionary Society and the British and Foreign Bible Society are starting to get organized so that evangelization can start to take place outside of that particular locale into the world. And what we're going to see is this is kind of the preamble to the modern missions movement, where people are going to go to other lands and take uh, the gospel. But the greatest accomplishment that Wilberforce ever had was in his desire to abolish slavery. He was kind of the Abe Lincoln of the Brits. Does that make sense? He's the individual that is pushing for the freedom of, uh, of slaves. And so he takes, it takes a long time. Uh, it takes actually about 20 years before uh, there's a notable advance that uh, takes place. But uh, he begins this process in 1789, and it takes two years before he introduces a bill uh, to Parliament to um to prevent the importing of slaves into the west indies now remember 
Britain has all kinds of British colonies that it's expanded uh, to various parts of the world at this point. There was a very uh, um, influential group that was known as the Clapham sect. These were individuals that were uh, kind of aristocratic and fairly, fairly well off that helped um, Wilberforce kind of pursue a change and pressure the government to uh, make changes, which leads to the question, you wonder, without that type of backing, uh, whether Wilberforce would have accomplished as much as he did because they had kind of the uh, influence and the connections, uh, you know, that was needed to see some of these things happen. Now, there's kind of a sad note here. I took, I mentioned a moment ago that um, it took 20 years of Wilberforce and the, uh, the sect that I mentioned, the Clapham sect, to really see Parliament finally vote to abolish slavery. And so um, this is called the Slavery Abolition Act. And all kinds of pictures like these, drawings of the freedom of slaves, began to appear in publications and so on and so forth. But the sad note of it all is we find here that the uh, Slavery Abolition Act is voted into law and Wilberforce dies four days later. Four days after this Abolition Act is voted into law, uh, he had to step down previously because of health problems. And, uh, and yet his influence continued and, and a slavery is abolished in 1833. And what we find is that he didn't really get to see the, the fruit of his labor. Uh, it, it happens and then he passes away. Now, as always, wherever there's a movement, there's a counter movement. So now Wilberforce and others like him are making significant changes. And there arises a group called the Oxford Movement connected to Oxford University that uh, begins to uh, push back on on all this liberty that people are having because even though it's not the Catholic Church, they would like to see the Church of England still retain uh, some influence and power over the people. And so uh, this Oxford group began to try to shift power um, back toward the Church of England. Uh, eventually, the Reformation, uh, the Reform Act of 1832 shifted the balance of power, as you can see here, um, from the aristocrats, the Oxford movement, to the middle class. And the Oxford movement uh, is trying to affirm one basic theological point that's really important, and that is, no, uh, the church does not get its authority from the state. The church gets its authority from God. And um, so they began to publish tracts, T-R-A-C-T-S, uh, trying to emphasize the continued succession of bishops. So this sounds like apostolic succession that's already in the Catholic Church. 
But it's interesting that they using they're using these little pamphlets that later will become evangelistic tools as well. So at one time in Christianity, people left a lot of tracks rather than tips for waitresses, you know, <laughs> and servers, that type of thing. Uh, so it goes back a long way is what I'm trying to say. But what we find taking place is they, like the Catholic Church, is putting an emphasis on the sacraments and uh, the Eucharist and baptism and weddings and all these type of things is to be held into the power of the uh, leadership of the church. And so you might say that the uh, Church of England and the Roman Catholic Church have kind of the same approach on on who is able to administer the sacraments to the people. Make sense? Okay, now let's shift focus. During this time as well, you have a lot of different Protestant missions that are starting to develop. And we don't have time tonight to talk about all these various individuals, but I'm sure if you've been in church a while, or at least involved in a church that has had a pretty strong um, missions department or um, mission support around the world, these names occasionally will pop up. And they go back to this time period here when um, the Protestant side of the church began to get uh, a real motivation to reach the rest of the world. So uh, maybe you've heard of uh, William Carey. Uh, William Carey lived from 1761 to 1834. His primary focus was on uh, trying to reach the world. Um, and uh, he in particular had a pretty heavy influence in India. Um, but um, he thought that Christianity needed to be rooted in the culture and traditions of the land that they were trying to reach. So what is one of the things that missionaries always do. They always go to language school. They always go to school to try to learn the culture of the place that they're going to serve because um, they feel that's the best way to build a bridge to try to reach people for Christ. Unfortunately, a lot of times missions actually turned into kind of colonizing of native people in their own lands. But at least initially, it was this idea of hey, let's, let's be sensitive to their culture. Let's be sensitive to their traditions and so forth. So uh, you have William Carey, and uh, along with another guy named Andrew Fuller. Now, one thing I didn't check, um, and I should have, but I forgot to look it up, is if uh, Fuller Theological Seminary, which was one of the places I was thinking about going when I was going into seminary out in California, was because of the influence of this man. I'd have to look that up. Don't take that as gospel, but it's, it's what popped into my head. But him and Andrew Fuller and 11 other colleagues founded the Baptist Missionary Society. And uh, so some of these are very influential, uh, even to our own day and age. You're going to see a couple of them on a coming slide here. Maybe some other names you've heard before. David Livingston. Uh, Livingstone. Uh, his primary focus was Africa. Adoniram Judson. Uh, his was Burma and Hudson Taylor. 
uh, was China. So these are all kind of very significant early missionaries that basically uh, did what um, William Carey said. So here you see a map of India kind of against the backdrop of his profile. And one of the things that he said is expect great things from God, attempt great things for God. And he really did. And he had a pretty profound influence upon uh, Protestant missionary movements. Do you have any questions, comments, or experience in any of these things? So, you know, um, some churches have pretty significant uh, missionary support even to this day and age. I, I think a lot of the newer churches with younger people don't have quite the emphasis that the previous generation did in trying to go into different parts of the world and reach that country for Christ. But um, but this is where it goes back to. Okay, now let's shift our focus to America. We've been talking about France and England. Now let's shift our focus to America during this time. So in 1835, there's a guy by the name of Lyman Beecher. He lived from 1775 to 1863. He was a New England minister, and he thought that God was kind of opening up uh, uh, a new territory uh, for uh, uh, people to explore and settle in and so you see here on the screen that uh, it, it mentions here that <clears throat> he thought the American wilderness was the area that God was opening up to these early um, settlers in our country. And he thought that Christians should really seize on that opportunity and kind of shape that new movement west. So when there would be new territories that were discovered and settled, uh, there should be a, a Christian influence there. Now, this, I think, is where you get a lot of our, our nation is a Christian country. Um, you know, there's a lot of people that kind of believe that we were a Christian nation from the very start. This is probably coming from this era of time where uh, Lyman Beecher says, go west, young man. The only problem is, as they go west, they have to displace a lot of the Native Americans uh, to take that land, to build on it. And they use something that was called manifest destiny as kind of a belief that God is opening up this land and I would venture to say they probably are thinking in terms of how God gave the Israelites the opportunity to go in and drive out the Canaanites and to settle in the uh, promised land as kind of a, a sense of uh, justification for some of these things. But the vision was of a Christian America. That's kind of the dominant theme. So as these evangelicals uh, face the challenge of uh, moving and, and settling, um, they are seeing a second great awakening starting to take place. Um, this comes through some other influencers that I'll mention in a moment. But the Bill of Rights in our own uh, history 
is this idea that there should be uh, religious liberty for all uh, enabled denominations to go ahead and define their own faith and practices. And um, out of that came a host of different organizations, the American Bible Society, the American Tract Society. These organizations are still around. Uh, you can still order Bibles online through the American Bible Society, even to this very day. The American Tract Society still publishes a lot of those pamphlets that people use in their evangelistic efforts. This Second Great Awakening was really built on the shoulders of these four men, uh, James McGreedy, Charles Finney, D.L. Moody, and Billy Sunday. Um, these four individuals... They didn't necessarily live all at the same time. There is some overlap between them, but they all kind of caught um, the ear of this new world that is being established and, and uh, the need for morals, the need for a Christian America, that type of thing. So uh, as you know, I am a uh, graduate of Moody Bible Institute and uh, Dwight Moody, 1837 to 1899, he had kind of a rough upbringing because of poverty. Uh, at the age of 17, he left home to become a shoe salesman. Uh, he was an individual that uh, got started in Sunday school work and working with children and so forth. And he's an individual that caught the ear of um, of children first and foremost, and began to try to teach them about God, and and there, he influenced hundreds and hundreds of kids. Eventually, he saw the need for schools, and that would eventually lead ultimately to the Moody Bible Institute, uh, which is on LaSalle Street in downtown Chicago. Uh, but uh, he is an individual that um, had a profound influence um in this era of time, he was a revivalist. Um, he's an individual that had a heavy influence on um, on church, and uh, uh, there's Moody Church in in Chicago as well that goes all the way back. So a school, a church, and and, and various elements like that. Uh, so uh, since I'm a graduate of that school, I thought. That's one portrait I need to put up on the screen for a couple of minutes anyways. So, all right. So as we move ahead, so as the nation begins to migrate west, slavery now becomes an issue because a lot of these, uh, these uh, newfound territories are displacing Amer Native Americans, but they're built on the backs of slaves. So slaves are the ones that are doing a lot of the hard work. Now, what I find interesting in all of this is um, uh, the daughter of uh, Lyman Beaker, uh, her name is Harriet Beaker Stowe. She actually becomes an abolitionist. Uh, you know, uh, this is interesting because it's her dad that's pushing for westward exploration and establishment and that type of thing. And along with that came a lot of 
um, of, of using slaves for the hard work, but she catches a vision. And again, this has already taken place in England, but she catches a vision for a, uh, a new kind of America where there is no slavery. She writes a book uh, called Uncle Tom's Cabin. I don't know if you ever had to read that at all when you were in school. But what it did was it kind of aroused a anti-slavery sentiment. And with that, along with Abraham Lincoln's influence as the president of our nation, um, this turns into the Civil War. And the Civil War lasts for four years, and it's one of the bloodiest wars in the history of our country. And what we find is that uh, eventually um, there's going to be the abolition of slavery, just like had already happened over in England. One small note here. Um, Charles Finney was an evangelist, a revivalist, and he was an individual that really started what was um, what would become altar calls. So as, um, some preachers are still big on that today. Come down, come forward, that type of thing. But here's what's interesting. Charles Finney, uh, his altar calls were first and foremost to have people come forward to join the abolitionist movement. That was what altar calls were. Uh, uh, established for. Uh, later, it turned into evangelistic uh, tool that come down, receive Christ, uh, pray the sinner's prayer, that type of thing. Now, I thought Esty would find this interesting. Our own area in the Midwest here really becomes a core area for the anti-slavery movement. And the reason you'll find this interesting is Charles Finney becomes the first president of what would become Oberlin College. Huh. Um, <clears throat> uh, one of her co-workers down at Church of the Covenant, one of the organists, he's a professor at Oberlin College. He teaches sacred music and organ there. And uh, he travels to teach. Um, he lives in Cleveland Heights, and he travels out to Oberlin on a regular basis to teach classes there. But that was really uh, started through the influence of Charles Finney, and Finney became the first president. So I wouldn't mind going and seeing that school sometime. I think that'd be interesting. But any thoughts there? Okay, here is Harriet Beecher Stowe, and here's one of her quotes. Aren't those lovely curls that she has? <laughs> It's a matter of taking the side of the weak against the strong, something the best people have always done. So she's had a number of different quotes as well that uh, have very influential elements to, um, to this movement that she helped to motivate. So you have now this struggle for power. You have the Industrial Revolution. You have this Second Great Awakening. All these things are happening during this era of time. And then comes the big one. And the big one is Charles Darwin. So Charles Darwin 
uh, he spends years in research and he began to see uh, through the fossil record and his research that there is the appearance of the evolution of uh, different species. And so he writes us all down in 1859 in a book called On the Origin of Species. And he's arguing that evolution took place by natural selection. You know, the stronger people, uh, not people, the stronger animals uh, win out over the weaker ones. And then there's this process of evolutionary development. So what we find taking place is this idea, is that true about mankind as well? Not just in terms of the creation of man, but in the way we're seeing society develop. So is the Industrial Revolution um, an indication that we are evolving and, and that we're trying to get rid of things like poverty and crime and homelessness and the lack of education and that type of thing too. So the that these two uh, cultural influ influences are combined with this idea of the higher criticism of the Bible. And that is, there are some things that scholars are looking at at the Bible and they're saying, there are some things that aren't adding up here. There seems to be disagreement in the text. There seems to be discrepancies there as well. So with these three influences, evolution, industrial revolution, and the higher criticism of the Bible uh, within universities really had an influence on this idea of a Christian America. So Lyman Beecher's dream that everybody would be a part of a Christian America is kind of receding into the background because of these new discoveries that are taking place. A little bit more on Charles Darwin. There's a picture of him right there. Um, his writings become synonymous with evolution, but it's not until his second book, Descent of Man in 1871, that he begins to apply what he has discovered to human beings as well. Now, you can imagine how this has upset the church when they hear that mankind has evolved uh, from animals. And the primary thing that they begin to worry about is, doesn't the Bible say that we are made in the image of God? Well, evolution might suggest, well, we're made in the image of those that we evolved from. So this becomes a very hot topic, and it will on into the 1900s as well. And you're going to have the Scopes trial and some other things take place. Uh, should evolution be taught in school will become a very big issue. Uh, so it also kind of, uh, it kind of questions this idea of salvation that the church has been teaching, and that is, if humanity is not specifically created in the image of God, but is evolved from other species, well, what do we do with the fall of mankind into sin and the need of Christ to die for those sins? You see, it has a an ongoing effect, that, and 
So the church is really going to fight against this because it begins to kind of affect the core of the gospel message as well. So at the same time, liberals are coming to say, well, you can't, you cannot discredit the evidence that is being found. It's right there. You, you are noticing changes in the fossil record. You're seeing that, you know, uh, the earth is not 6,000 years old. It's hundreds of thousand years old. And in more recent days, we know that um, the universe uh, is billions of years old. And what do you do with that? Oh, my goodness. So all of this is beginning to mount up. And what happens is uh, Christians are going to begin to make their choice. Are we going to stay orthodox? Are we going to continue to defend the old dogma? Or are we going to begin to adapt to the new information that we are discovering? So around this time, Protestant liberalism is the way it's been called, begins to emerge. And it's trying to engage with the problem, how do Christians make their faith meaningful in a world that is full of new discoveries? What do you do with that new information? So pastors now are, are needing to make a choice. <laughs> are they going to stay with the old world, or are they going to move into the new world? And so pastors now have to navigate these three things modern science, modern philosophy, and modern history. What do we do with that? And how does it affect the Bible? How does it affect our viewpoint of the Bible? So there's one very famous pastor. Uh, his name is Henry Emerson Fosdick. Uh, here's a picture of him in his pulpit. Uh, he was the pastor of the very famous Riverside Church in New York City. And he was the first really Protestant liberal pastor. Uh, this is a Presbyterian church, so he kind of comes out of the Calvinistic background of Presbyterian churches. And he wanted to make his faith as a Christian. He was a very devout Christian, but he wanted to make his faith intelligent uh, to modernity, to modern uh, thought. What do we do with what we're learning and stuff? So you he is kind of on one end and then you have um an, another end of the spectrum if you can kind of think of this new movement of protestant liberalism as kind of like a suspension bridge you'd find uh, henry emerson fosdick all the way to the left i mean he became a very liberal um uh pastor but others who are trying to navigate that, they're they're liberal, but they're not as liberal as he is. And between these two pillars on this suspension bridge, you might say, different pastors are finding their place on that, depending upon what they're comfortable with and so forth. Does that make sense? Okay. Now, I mentioned a, a moment ago that um, biblical criticism starts to come into play here by criticism don't take that to mean that they're criticizing the bible as a useful book that's not what it's about biblical criticism is this idea of we're looking at the text we're studying the text and we're seeing problems what do we do with those problems how do we 
how do we harmonize these things or can we harmonize these things? So biblical criticism is this scholarly approach of looking at the Bible and how it came together and using different sciences to uh, evaluate it. It can be textual studies. It can be archaeological studies. It can be uh, the culture and historical studies of when the Bible was written. We're looking at a book over uh, 2,000 years old here. I mean, it's a very, very old text. And, and so biblical criticism basically is looking at this information and is saying, have we evolved from when the first parts of the Bible were written? And does that help explain to us why in that day and age, people um, actually believed that God had commanded genocide of the Canaanites and so forth? Well, there's two types of uh, biblical criticism that develops. One is called lower criticism, and that's the problems that you find in the text itself. So I mentioned a few of these on Sunday uh, in the previous weeks in our study there that the Gospels don't agree all the time. Um, you have a late cleansing of the temple in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and you have an early occurrence of that in John. What do you do with that? Were there two cleansing of the temples, or was there only one, but one was placed in a different so those type of issues is what's called lower criticism. Higher criticism is asking the question, what is behind the text? That is, what has influenced the people to write the way they did? And that's where you get into the idea of this picture of God in the Old Testament is much different than the picture of God presented to us by Jesus in the New Testament. What do you do with that? Could it be the cultural influences of that day is everybody looked at God as this uh, as this deity, uh, or in some cases, a plurality of deities that needs to be appeased and is always angry. And if you disobey him, he's out to get you, that type of thing. So you see there at the bottom of the screen, the primitive bloodthirsty ideas of a tribal God showed how the Jews slowly began to change their idea of God, especially in the time of the New Testament, to a God that uh, loves justice, loves mercy, is the father of mankind, that type of thing. So you see some of that toward the end of the Old Testament. Matthew chapter, uh, not Matthew, Micah chapter 6 uh, tells us, what, uh, he has shown you, O man, what is good. What does the Lord require of you? To do justice, love mercy, walk humbly with your God. So you, even in the Old Testament, you see kind of a evolution of thought that's beginning to take place. Well, that's, that's called biblical criticism. Um, a lot of times people are fearful of that approach. And so they go, don't listen to those people that talk about how you have to evaluate the text because they're going to, they're going to, you know, they're going to destroy your faith, that type of thing. Uh, that's just fear speaking. It's there whether you want to recognize it or not. There are issues there that you got to wrestle with in the scripture. 
and you can't turn a blind eye to it. You have to wrestle with it. And unfortunately, a, a lot of people don't want to do that. Okay, just a few more slides. I mentioned earlier this evening that the Industrial Revolution uh, let people have an option on how they're going to make a living. And so you have these plants that are starting and so forth. And factories develop. And um, as they develop, as always, uh, those who are in position to uh, build those factories, own those factories, and reap the benefit of those factories financially, well, they don't take care of their employees very well. And so what happens is as these factories are built, uh, many of the, these factories were unsafe. They were unsanitary. And, um, and people could get hurt on the job fairly easily. But there was no health insurance that was provided to these employees. And as a result, when a worker got hurt, let's say uh, he's operating a machine and maybe he loses several fingers uh, gets caught in the machine or that type of thing. Well, he's no longer valuable as a employee because he can't do the job anymore because, you know, he's been hurt. Those individuals are then cast out onto the street. They lose their job. And now all of a sudden they're homeless as well. So that's what I mean by when people m made these moves toward finding jobs in these factories, there was both fear and hope at the same time, because if something goes wrong, I mean, they really could lose everything. The other thing that was really terrible was the exploitation of women and children in the factories. And um, they were worked hard, you know, 12 hours a day, 14 hours a day for very little pay. And, um, and so, um, now, the Industrial Revolution has kind of already outpaced the church. Now, what is the church going to do in light of these uh, catastrophes that are taking place? Yeah, we're, we're bigger, we're better, we have all this technology, we're uh, discovering new ways of doing things. But all these people now are destitute and poor and hungry and, and that type of thing. What do you do with that? So the last slide of the evening is, even in England, that was a problem with the factories as well in the Industrial Revolution. And um, there's a guy by the name of William Booth that um, had a real heart for the destitute, those individuals that were on the streets. And he and his wife, Catherine here, uh, they began preaching the gospel to uh, those that were on the margins, and people started to listen, and out of that came the Salvation Army. Uh, Salvation Army um, then began to structure itself uh, like the military, so uh, he's no longer an evangelist, he's the general, and those that are high-ranking in the organization, they're colonels and lieutenants and, and that type of thing, and even to this very day, 
when you uh, when you see someone involved in the Salvation Army that's in a leadership position, they wear a military type uniform. Um, that's you know because that's the way it was structured, but it was a it was something that had a, a remarkable response. You can see here at the bottom of the slide. Um, there were people that pushed back on William Booth and his wife. Uh, they were persecuted, uh, sometimes threatened violence and so forth. And yet, between 1881 and 1885, four years, it's estimated over 250,000 people came to know Christ through their influence, their love, their outreach, that type of thing. And uh, so even in this picture, as you can see, uh, you see the emblems. You see here the cross, uh, and it, it looks like a military uniform, doesn't it? Uh, here you see um, there's some type of, there's an S, and I, I'm not really sure what that other symbol represents, but I think it's representative of the Salvation Army, that idea. So, um that's where I want to kind of finish tonight. Um, it's a real wild time, isn't it? I mean, you have all of this stuff that's going on, and the church is trying to find her way through it, basically. Okay, do you have some thoughts, some questions, comments? Um, My brother works for the Salvation Army. Yeah, um, yeah, Esty's brother, Joe, is an accountant for the Salvation Army. Uh, he got his... Uh, accounting degree down at Cleveland State and um you know they still do wonderful work uh yeah. you know and I think we forget about them most of the time until yeah. Christmas and then when Christmas comes around you see the the kettle you know where they get coins and so forth he says they raise most of their money through that yeah right yeah yeah but sometime when you're going through downtown Cleveland Take a look if you have not noticed it. There's a big Salvation Army building, and you'll see it right at the top of the building. It says Salvation Army. So it's a very it's a very significant organization, even after all of these years, you know. Um, and they're doing good work. Uh, mm -hmm. Some of them uh, house the homeless. Um, some of them yeah. feed the hungry, um, and different types of ministry like that. I think different locations concentrate on different things. So, mm -hmm. you know, it, it depends upon, there are still Salvation uh, Army churches. So there's the local level, there's the national level as well. So, all right. Anything else that um, you, you might have for this evening? So obviously we started. are inching closer, right, to our own day and age. So the last two studies we'll have, we'll, we'll, some of us will be able to remember some of those things rather than it just being something in a history book. Hmm. Anything else? Didn't the, Salvation Army start the, didn't the Salvation Army start Sunday schools too? Um. You know, I think they did, now that you I, mentioned it. I, I think I remember my mom saying that or somebody. I think they did. I think you're right. You know, 
Moody, well, I think Moody probably was building on something that was already in place when he yeah, had concentration yeah. on the Sunday school. Yeah. yeah. And I knew was, somebody. That you know what's interesting? I've noticed even in the course of my lifetime that Sunday school used to be a much bigger deal in the past oh, than yeah. it is today. In fact, um, this little church, two doors from my mom and dad, um, their Sunday school attendance was bigger than their church attendance, mm -hmm. which was yeah. interesting. Yeah. Think, back in the day. Yeah. Years ago. And, you know. Um, yeah. And then it kind of flipped. Now, now mm -hmm. uh, uh, worship is a higher attendance than, well, that's assuming that it, uh, a church still has Sunday school, but, you know, the church service is more attended than the Sunday school is. So. Yeah, yeah. All right. Well, we'll call it a night. And um, thanks for sticking with me. We looked at a lot of stuff tonight. And we got two more things that we'll look at uh, next week and two weeks from tonight. And then we'll be done with this. Okay. So, okay. all right. Yep. We'll see good. you guys on Sunday. Right. Okay. Bye. Bye. Bye-bye.